Well, that's a challenging song for us in the implications of it. And we have a cha challenging passage of God's word, so we better pray. Let's do that. Our Father and our God, we bow before you and thank you for this time we've had together to lift up your name in song and praise and to call out to you in prayer, uh, to um, gather with God's people, Father, and to encourage each other in these days that we might be faithful servants of yours and that you might find our lives fully surrendered to you, our Father. You have uh, led us to embark upon a journey, Father, of, of uh, discipleship and understanding the nature of our identity and who we are in Christ, the basics of the faith, basics of Christianity, at uh, the very um, uh, center of who we are. And so, Father, I pray that uh, as we uh, now turn to your voice to us, as you speak to us through your word, that our hearts will be fully open, our ears fully uh, awake and ready to listen. Lord, I pray that distractions would be removed from us, that we might be able to focus on the things that you have to say to us today from your word. Uh, you are a great God and we love you. And Lord God, we ask that the, uh, the power that you have promised us by your presence would, um, would energize our lives and move us forward, I pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. It was on a bald outcrop, outcropping of rock just outside of a deep, dark, dank cave in a place referred to by the locals as the Gates of Hades. In the Middle East, a place called Caesarea Philippi that Jesus Christ determined that it was time for him to clarify his identity. And for those of you who remember or know or have journeyed before in Matthew chapter 16, you know that Jesus asked the question, who are people saying that I am? And they gave him a few answers. The disciples gave him a few answers. And then he said, but who do you say that I am? And in a bold move of spiritual sensitivity... Peter blurted out, well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you, you recall that Jesus said to him that he did not come up with that on his own, but rather the Father had given him insight into that. If your Bibles are open at Matthew chapter 16, we note that Jesus Christ followed up with a sober explanation of his pending passion. How he was about to go to Jerusalem, be killed, and be raised again. It says in verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and on the third day, be raised to life. And on, on the heels of this great spiritual moment of identifying Jesus Christ accurately, Peter blurts out a second time now, no, may it never be of you. This is not something I want to see happen. And only moments before, Jesus had declared, Peter, you are the rock. And now he calls him a stumbling stone. Getting in the way of the things of God. Because all he has on his mind is the things of men. And so it's at that moment that 
Jesus determines not only does his identity need to be clarified, but he better clarify the identity of those who are going to follow him as disciples. He is about to pay the ultimate price of giving up his life to win the prize of those who the Father would give him as followers of him, disciples in the kingdom, people. And so it's at this moment he looks at all of the men who are there, the disciples, and wants to make sure they understand what their identity is. He wants to make sure that they understand the specifics and characteristics and distinctives of what a disciple really is. If he's going to pay the ultimate price, he wants to make sure that he gets what he paid for. So my question this morning for you as we embark upon this next in our series on disciple is how about you? Is Jesus getting what he paid for? That's the question this morning. Now notice what he says in verse 24. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. Last Sunday we began a journey on defining a disciple. On Sunday nights and midweek nights in our discipleship communities, we are going to study what disciples do. But in the mornings, we're going to talk about who a disciple is, what a disciple is. And last week, we discovered that first, a disciple is a baptized believer who makes disciples by going to people with the good news and baptizing those Jesus saves and teaching them to obey everything Jesus has commanded. Now, in this journey that we are taking in the matter of what is a disciple, I have selected from the scriptures those particular places where Jesus says, a disciple is, or you cannot be my disciple unless, or, or this is how people will know you are my disciple. So it specifically relates to Jesus' explicit descriptions and statements on disciple. These are not ideas that are created by church tradition. They're not ideas or vision of our church. They're not something that I've dreamed up. I want to deliver to you from Jesus' own mouth, from the Word of God, His definition, His identification, His characteristics of a disciple. And so... Um, Later on in the ministry, after this moment at Caesarea Philippi, 
In Luke chapter 14, which is where we will go this morning, Luke chapter 14, verse 25 and following, we find there that Jesus by this time has gathered a crowd of groupies. A lot of people are following him, checking him out, hanging out with him, tire kickers, you know, the kind of people who go window shopping. Uh, guys, when they take their wives to the mall, you know what I mean? You go off, you leave your wife shopping somewhere, and you say, well, I'll just go looking around. And, and you know, um, someone comes to you in the store and says, can I help you? No, not really. I'm just killing time. I have no intention of buying anything. I'm here only because my wife is here. You know that kind of thing? And so Jesus has all those kind of people around him. He says there's a group of them, and basically he turns to them and he says to them, this great crowd, why are you here? Now, that's not written in the text, but that's fundamentally what he's doing in this, in this event. He's turning to them and saying, look, you're following me all over the place. I want to know, why are you here? And with that as the backdrop, let me start reading at verse 25. Large crowds, it says, Luke chapter 14, were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Very similar to what we heard in his identifying disciples at Caesarea Philippi. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying... This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or, suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Is it, it is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, I want to um, point out to you that right from the beginning of this discussion with people, Jesus defines who he's talking about. In verse 26, he says, if anyone comes to me. So he's talking now about those who really mean business with the Lord. He's talking about those who are really going to belong to him. A specific type of person, in other words. The kind that are really going to come after him. Uh, the, the kind that demonstrate a specific kind of behavior. The kind that demonstrates specific distinctions in their lives. And from this text this morning, I want to show you four distinctions that Jesus identifies as the, in terms of the definition of a disciple. And the first is this. Belonging to me, Jesus says, must be your family, your life, and your comfort. He was putting, in other words, rubber on the road of a parable he had delivered just before this event is recorded. If you look back a couple of verses, starting at verse 16, there's a parable there where uh, 
Jesus talks of a, a man who's about to throw a, a, a great banquet. And he goes out and he invites people to this great banquet. Invites crowds of people to the banquet. And, and as you read that parable, you'll notice that systematically after the invitation has gone out, there's a series of individuals who make excuses as to why they can't come to the banquet. And Jesus goes on in terms of the, uh, the, the normal, um, the idea of committed discipleship is generally met with lame excuses. Let me, let me illustrate. Perhaps we don't understand uh, the, the, uh, the Near Eastern or the Middle Eastern culture here, but when someone was to throw a banquet or a great event, they would go out, and, and it's not dissimilar in some ways to what we do, but... He would go out or she would go out and invite a great group of people to come to the banquet and they would respond, yes, we are coming. And on the basis of that, like our RSVPs, I suppose, on the basis of that, the individual would go back and prepare. They would purchase what they needed for the banquet. They would put on the great spread and they would gather all the supplies that they needed for this banquet. And then once the banquet was ready, they would go back to all of these individuals and they would say, the banquet is ready. Come now, come to the feast. That's where we find ourselves in this parable. And we find um, examples of individuals with excuses. The first one says to the man who comes and invites him to his banquet, he says, well, I can't come. I, I just bought a, a piece of property and I need to go and inspect it. And to, um, to accentuate the lameness of this excuse, Jesus is, point, is making the point that this person has already bought the property. It's rather late to go and take a look at it. Then he comes upon another person. The, second per, the, the next person says, well, no, I, I've just purchased five oxen. And I need to go and ride those suckers and see if they're any good. That's not exactly what Jesus said, but that's what he was thinking. And he's saying, here's another lame excuse. I mean, I'm inviting you to the banquet. You've already purchased the oxen. Why don't you come to the banquet and then afterwards you can go and ride those smelly oxen. And finally he comes upon the third person. Come to the banquet. It's ready. Come to the banquet. And they give this excuse. Well, I just got married. Well, bring your wife. She's invited too. And so one by one, we have this series of lame excuses. Family excuses, business excuses, got a bunch of new toys, hobbies, friendship excuses. All these excuses of why they can't come to the banquet. And Jesus says to the servant who comes back and tells him this, then go out to the highways and the byways. Go to the alleyways. Go to the little nooks and crannies and invite the blind and the sick and the lame and the deaf because I've got this great, great banquet that my house might be full of people who think it's worthwhile to come to my banquet. It's in that backdrop that Jesus says to those who are following him as a crowd... You can't be my disciple unless you're willing to put away all of your lame excuses, 
unless you're willing to, to literally hate your father, your mother, your sister, your brother, your job, your toys, your hobbies, your possessions. Now, does he mean hate in an absolute sense where you should go and injure these things? No, that's not what he means. He was literally pointing out that, the, that you need to place all former and normal loyalties on notice. That they are to be shaped and redefined by your new passion for the Lord Jesus Christ. If not, he says, if you're not prepared for that, you cannot be my disciple. Now, he doesn't stop there. He continues by illustrating to them the nature of this journey called disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower, and he goes on. The second distinctive that he is going to point out to them by way of this picture is that belonging to me is a long, costly building project. The starting gate is no indication of discipleship. Many have started. We know that. We know of people. Many have started the journey. Jesus, I want to point out to you, never minimized the cost of disciple at the front end. Jesus never misrepresents the the issue of discipleship as soft or simple or low commitment. No, no, he says, listen, if you want to come to me, if you want to follow me, I I want you to think of it as if you were going to build a great tower. And I want you to think in advance, do I have enough? Am I willing enough to count the cost that it's going to be to finish the tower, to finish the journey? A wishy-washy faith that is not disciple devotion is miserable. That's, I believe, why he says the man who told everybody he was going to build a tower and then starts it, puts down a foundation and can't finish it, says he's ridiculed. I was trying to think to myself, if we follow Christ with all of our hearts, we're going to be ridiculed and persecuted and all of that. So how is this different? It's a different kind of ridicule. You see, um, the picture that Jesus has in mind is, it's as if you have started on the journey of following Christ. And you've advertised that. You've made it known to people. People understand that uh, he's someone who claims to be a religious guy or a religious woman walking with the Lord. I don't know all that terminology, but that's the kind of thing. He goes to church all the time, stuff like that. But then you decide the, the real cost of what Christ wants from you is too great because there's a lot of things in life that you still want to have. 
There's a lot of worldly stuff that you, you still want to engage in. There's a lot of sinful stuff that you're not really ready to get rid of in your life. And, and, and so you're, you're caught in betwixt or between. You're, you're in one hand uh, holding yourself out as a Christian, but on the other hand, you've you're, you're got another foot in the world and you're, you're really not wanting to finish the journey and go all the way with Jesus Christ. People are looking at you and saying to you, like, who are you? Like, are you, are you, you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ? You belong to God? Are you passionate for him? Or, or are you one of us? Because I'm not really sure. You, you're like a chameleon. You're over here half of the time, and then you're over there. And, and, and people just start to ridicule you and say, that faith is ridiculous faith. That's, you don't really, you're not really passionate about it. You're not really committed to that. The one thing we know for sure is that Jesus doesn't count a foundation as a finished product. You might have laid a great foundation when you were 10 years old or 15 years old or 20 years old. But Jesus makes the fine print gigantic at the very front end. This is a long, costly project. And if you're coming after me, if you're going to belong to me, if you're going to follow me, then I'm going to intentionally interfere in your life. I'm going to make sure it's finished. That's why we look around at each other and say, man, I don't, I don't understand what's going on in their life. They're having all kinds of things or happening in our life. We're having all kinds of things. Or, and, and there are a variety of different things happenings in our life, this not working out or that not working out or this hassle or this pressure and all that, what do you think that's all about? That's God intentionally interfering in your life. Taking off the rough edges, shaping you into a disciple, building the tower, finishing the product. A lot of people bail at that moment and say, it's too, it's too costly, it's too painful, it hurts too much, there's too much pressure, I'm, I'm not going to do it. Remember Fanny Crosby, a uh, great hymn writer, written so many hymns, blind woman, woman of faith, love God. She said, I have learned in my life to give things over to God because it hurts too much to have him pry my fingers loose of the things I don't want to let go. There's a danger of great misery if you decide that you're going to be sort of a Christian. Sort of a disciple. I'm sort of in. I'm sort of in here Sunday. I'm sort of in here Monday. You can't be my disciple, Jesus says, if that's the way you want to be. Well, he strengthens the picture, if that's even possible, as we move on to the next picture. Suppose a, a king is about to go to war against another king uses this great imagery of kings and kingdoms in clash. 
Do you understand that the, uh, the king of glory is coming? Do you know that? Has anybody told you that? I'm not sure. Did you know that? That the king of glory is coming. Okay, all right. The king of glory is coming. And it says in the word of God that every knee will bow and every mouth will profess. And I'm talking now about skeptics and atheists and any other kind of religion there is. Every, it's an encompassing word, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what's coming. That's the picture here. Jesus is talking about this coming king. He knows he's coming. And this glorious king, well, all mouths will declare and confess he is who he says he is. He's only coming for those who actually are his disciples. And he's talking to disciples now. He's talking to people who get it. He's saying, listen, I'm coming. Now, are you going to be ready for me? Is your life, is your heart, is your soul going to be ready? Because belonging to me is to be overwhelmed by an overpowering king. Look what he says here. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000 men? Which king do you think Jesus is in this story? He's the king with 20,000. Which king are we? We're the king with 10,000. Who's going to win in this battle? The king with 20,000. Jesus is pointing out that anyone who would come after me, if you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, and you give your life over to me, I am going to battle for every last vestige of your life. I'm going to win this battle. And if you're intelligent, you'll figure that out at the front end. In fact, it says, won't you... Won't you... um, as you see him coming from a long distance, won't you send an emissary and ask for terms of peace? What do you want, O great king? What would it look like to be at peace with you? What do you want from my life? He says, this is the picture of a disciple. A disciple is one who understands that that you don't have the resources the strength to keep holding on to pieces of property that you think belong to you. You have no property rights anymore. I'm going to get what I paid for. I bought all of you. And I want all of you. And you can't be a disciple of mine unless I am able, unless you give it to me, unless I, am, I have it all. And so we have this face-off He's saying, why are you trying to to stay cozy with the world and keep some of your life to yourself? You think you can fend off the consuming fire of God? So take no chances. Take no chances with the 
pressure of a conquering king. Surrender. Wave the white flag now of total, complete surrender of your life. There's a danger of holding on to part ownership. Whatever the terms of peace, accept them. There's a final um, concluding, all-encompassing description. Verse 33. In the same way, said all of this, Jesus said, let me be abundantly clear what I'm talking about. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Now the women in here are breathing a collective sigh of relief. Said he, unless he gives up everything, so I guess we don't have to. No, 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 this, this is the collective, ladies, he. This is the all people, he. Unless you all give up everything you have, you cannot be my disciple. Belonging to me is to give up everything for the only king. David Platt in his book, Radical, commenting on this general section of scripture, writes this. What if you were the man whom Jesus told to not even say goodbye to his family? What if we were told to hate our families and give up everything we had in order to follow Jesus? This is where we come face to face with a dangerous reality. We do have to give up everything we have to follow Jesus. We do have to love him in a way that makes our closest relationships in this world look like hate. And it is entirely possible that he will tell us to sell everything we have and give it to the poor. But we don't want to believe it. We are afraid of what it might mean for our lives. So we rationalize these passages away. Not out loud, mind you. The conversation that will take place, that we'll share with one another will be, yeah, that's great. That's what a disciple really is. Yeah, everything. I'm all in. But in our mind right now, sitting on those wooden benches, going, come on. Come on, everything. When's he going to get over with this? I got other things to do. So we rationalize these passages away. Jesus wouldn't really tell us not to bury our father or say goodbye to our family. Jesus didn't literally mean to sell all we have and give it to the poor. What Jesus really meant was, and this is where we need to pause, because we are starting to redefine Christianity. We are giving into the dangerous temptation to take the Jesus of the Bible and twist him into a version of Jesus we are more comfortable with. A nice, middle-class American Jesus. Or Canadian Jesus. 
A Jesus who doesn't mind materialism and who would never call us to give away everything we have. A Jesus who would not expect us to forsake our closest relationships so that he receives all our affection. A Jesus who is fine with nominal devotion that does not infringe on our comforts because after all, he loves us just the way we are. A Jesus who wants us to be balanced, who wants us to avoid dangerous extremes, and who, for that matter, wants us to avoid danger altogether. A Jesus who brings us comfort and prosperity as we live out our Christian spin on the American dream. But do you know and I realize what we are doing at this point? We are molding Jesus into our image. He is beginning to look a lot like us because after all, that is whom we are most comfortable with. And the danger now is that when we gather in our church building to sing and lift up our hands in worship, we may not actually be worshiping the Jesus of the Bible. Instead, we may be worshiping ourselves. I don't know how to describe it any other way. There's no special Greek words or Hebrew idioms that I can explain this away. There's no nice, comfortable color, color I can put on this. Jesus defines a disciple as one who would give away everything for Christ. I wonder, you know, as I think about this and we're concluding, I wonder as we've brought to you this morning all of this discussion on cost, pain, challenge, suffering, surrender, sacrifice, everything. I wonder if the problem for most of us is we are focusing far too much on the cost. Now you say to me, wait a second, Jesus wanted us to focus there. Oh yes, he did. He wanted us to focus on the cost. But I wonder if we've missed the most important thing. And that's the treasure the cost provides. Jesus illustrated it this way. Parables you're familiar with. He talked about a man who was out in a field. And as he was wandering around that field, he discovered a hidden treasure. He dug it up, it says. And then he buried it again. And he rushed away. And liquidated everything he had, sold all of his assets so that he could go and purchase the field where the hidden treasure was. Now his friends, of course, on the sidelines of his life, were saying, what in the world are you thinking? You have liquidated all of your assets to buy this stupid field. You seem to be completely devoted to it. You go and visit it once a week. You could be doing other things. You continue to take your investments and invest it in this field. Have you lost your mind? 
Do you know what you're doing? And the man who bought the field with the hidden treasure, of course, says, oh yeah, I know exactly what I'm doing. I sold everything I had because the treasure that I gained was worth far more than any cost it could have ever been. Beloved, I'm not sure if Jesus gave a greater parable than that one. You see, when the gospel is presented to us, when Christ is presented to us and we welcome him into our lives, there's a hiddenness to that. He moves into the inside of us. We still look like every other person in life. We, we, there's nothing special on the outside of us. Now our behavior betray, hopefully betrays what we are, but, but let's, let's understand this, that, that what we have in Christ, the treasure of Christ, is, is hidden in our lives and in our hearts. And what we will yet receive is in many ways not yet visible to us. And so we walk around and to the people around us with our hidden treasure, they're looking at us, what in the world are you doing? Why would you invest so much of your life? Why would you give everything? Why would you turn from your family and serve this God? Why, why would you put away your career? You could have had this level and this level. Why would you settle for this and instead invest your affections and your attention this way? What they can't see is that we would be willing to pay anything for the treasure we know Jesus is. Jesus really finalized all of this by saying, if you really, really understand my identity, who I am, and what I offer you in the fullness of life, none of this that I have asked you to do is costly at all. In fact, the people who don't see will think we've overpaid and think we sacrificed too much. And maybe some people in your family are even church chirping at you because you're wanting to invest so much of your heart in the Lord. But we all know who are really serving the Lord that what we have is a bargain. the bargain of all bargains. Better than anything of this world is the treasure of having Jesus. I want you to uh, see with your eyes and hear with your ears from a testimony that was recently given at... Uh, Harvest Church in Chicago, Illinois. Watch it. In the midst of that prayer, what I heard within my prayer, you know, it wasn't audible, it was within. It's over with. Today's the day. Today is the day that you're going to serve me. Today is the day that you're no longer going to be a Latin king. That's over with. You're going to serve my kingdom. You know, I told people, you know, I took off my crown, I picked up a cross, and I'm following Christ, you know. Oh man, that's, that's what it's about. And you stand today as a testimony to every single person who's listening. Marvel not 
that I say to you, you must be born again. You know, when my family seen it, especially the ones who do not believe in Christ, they really were taken back like, wow, uh, you're pretty serious with this stuff, huh? I'm like, yeah, why do you say that? Like, well, we don't think a church would have went out their way to make a video on you if they really didn't believe in you, if they really didn't see the authenticity of your faith in that. And just to hear and to see again how people were just touched by the video and to see that God was able to uh, once again show up and show out. After the video came out on Harvest website and uh, it started getting a lot of views, but then uh, a brother of mine in my small group, he was like, hey Anthony, he's like, I had the brilliant idea of putting it on YouTube, and I put it under Latin King. If anybody looks for Latin King videos, your video's gonna pop up. Oh wow, this has a great implication here. I'm like, because masses of Latin Kings or affiliated gang members are gonna be looking to the site to see a promotional video when in contrast, it's about Jesus Christ. So a few weeks went by, and he was like, uh, hey, there's a lot of comments on these videos. I'm like, hey, I got an idea. He's like, what? Why don't you take my cell phone number and put it on the video? Within weeks, I've started having numerous people call me from former land kings or ex-land kings who became Christians or other individuals who just were inspired by the video and just people who just thought that the, the, the phone number was fake and they just wanted to try it out. They called me and sure enough, I'm on the other line and I answered the phone and it was a blessing. I actually even had three kings that I was incarcerated with that actually contacted me based off the video. So I was like, wow, how, how awesome God could take that video and just use it for his glory. One thing that I have learned, and I'd say the hard way since I've been released, is that if I don't succumb to Christ, if I don't submit to Him, that I could easily take steps back to my former life. I used to sell drugs while I was in prison. I used to sell drugs well, before I was incarcerated. So every now and then I, I go to struggle of, well, God's taking too long. Why don't I just go act out on my own? Why don't I just go take care of the situation? And God's like, no, Anthony, in your life, you could have two results. You could have the results that Anthony produces, or you could have the results that I produce. A brother of mine, a co-leader of mine for Connect Key, took an interest in me. He was like, wow, Anthony, you know, you're, really, you're really pretty good at allowing God to flow through you and speak into people's lives. He's like, you know, God's put it on my heart to want to start a ministry in downtown Chicago. So basically, ever since the beginning of this year, I've come out here on uh, Monday through Friday to downtown Chicago, eight, nine hours a day, and I basically walk the streets of downtown Chicago, pouring as much love as I possibly can. It's a blessing to see people getting detoxed off of heroin, off of alcohol, off of nicotine, and even just the simplest is what a hug can mean to somebody on the streets. Out of the midst of how dark the streets are in Chicago, there's still these little lights that are shining the love of Christ. I've seen just so many miracles out here. I've been able to be blessed to experience it. And just the, the reward of it itself is just so amazing because I just leave more ministers to than I feel they do. By a lot of support and motivation and guidance by my flock leaders and a lot of uh, pastors and individuals in my life, like, yeah, why don't you go to Moody? You know, I never really thought about that. I'm like, all right, I'm going to apply to Moody. What do I got to lose, right? So I, I just, I took a leap of faith. A little over a month later, by God's grace, uh, I was accepted to Moody. So for the next five years, it looks like I will be here in downtown Chicago. Um, studying the Word of God, being edified, being groomed, being mentored, being trained. Moody is going to be an astronomical blessing to me, and I believe that I will be a, also an immense blessing to uh, Moody. I would uh, highly encourage that everybody in the body of Christ identifies what's their transformational moment in life, what's their life testimony, and that they can share with as many people as they possibly can, because that's how people can realize and see our God's alive. Our God's real. Our God is still performing acts every day through the lives of everyday people.
Hey, listen. God the Father is filling his house with those people who treasure his son, the Lord Jesus. And when you treasure Jesus, there is no cost that's too great. Our Father and our God, I, we, we gather before you this morning, your beloved. Thank you for the course correction in our lives. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are straight with us. You tell us the truth. You don't surprise us at the end. You tell us up front. This is an all-in journey. This is, this is give it all. And so, our Father, I pray that each of us in this journey of disciple would go on from foundation to finish, that everyone might be presented complete in Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're standing because you really mean this before God, He will take you up on it. 27 years ago, I was in a meeting very similar to this, and I was in a pew where you are, and I made this promise to God. Now, I thought I was going to be a successful gazillionaire businessman, but he took me from that and brought me to this. And I made this same commitment with my family and with my children. And he continues to ask me, do you mean what you said? As he takes and uses them and scatters them around the world. It's not my plan. It's not the way I'd like it. It's his plan. Because he's my treasure. Make sure he's yours. Because that's who a disciple is. I don't know of any other description. It's been given to us by Jesus himself. Lord God, we're at an important junction in our lives. The nature of giving ourselves fully over to you. You have bought all of us. Our whole life and a disciple is one wherein you get what you paid for. And that's the only way you'll have it. So I pray, Father, that we would be that people. Totally available and usable by you. A disciple is one who gives everything for Jesus. And it's in your name I pray these things. Amen.